Welcome back to another episode of the Maroon Weekly. I'm Jake, and I'm here with... Celeste. Michael. Greg. Henry. And Prabhan. We have a couple new voices in the studio here today. Henry is making his first appearance of the Maroon Weekly, and Michael is a guest from the tech department of the Chicago Maroon. Happy to be here. <laughs> Happy to have both of you. First, we're going to start with Prabhan, who has a story on the botany pond. Yes, according to a university spokesperson and biology professor Michael LaBarbera, who oversees the restoration of the botany pond, the full scope of this project is expected to be further delayed, with refilling happening by the spring, landscaping and plant planting happening over the summer, and wildlife gradually being reintroduced thereafter, which is a process that will take at least six to eight months. So expect not to see the botany pond open to the public for a long while. La Barbara points to a leak of 30,000 gallons a month as one of the main reasons for a restoration, but in the project there are plans to repair the bridge, improve the water filtration system, and put in additional safety measures for falling into the pond, which was found to be deeper than previously supposed due to a six-foot-thick layer of mud. This article by Greta Cerniut was written and is available on the Maroon website from February 9th. I didn't know how good we had it when the Botany Pond was there. I had it for what, like, how, how long was it there for our first year? Six months? Do we have it for the whole year? Not even. Yeah, Not even. I'd say six months. Oh, yeah. well. There's, uh, they're, they're trying to do it slowly and do it well because they don't want to screw up the introduction of wildlife because they want to be very intentional. Uh, the article isn't just, they want to be very intentional with what organisms, flora and fauna, they choose to put back in the pond because they want to make it representative of what a Midwest pond would look like. Um, there's one more aside in the article about the turtles, which are uh, of interest to many students. Um, La Barbara says, the turtles are, a are at a spa for turtles. There's a wildlife biologist the university is paying to house the turtles, to feed them, keep them healthy, and put them back later. So, in case you're wondering about the turtles, no need to worry, I guess. Good to know that's where the university's money is going in these trying times. Oh, uh, we'll get to the money. <laughs> I wonder what happened to the ducks. I remember last year there were a bunch of side chat posts about them being scattered throughout campus. What's up that for them? I don't see them anymore, though. Someday, the university will have our ducks back. Next, we're going to go to Michael, who's going to tell us about the work he's been doing for the Maroon. Hi. Um, so, as of last week, which I guess would be the 1st or 2nd of February, the tech department and I released a UCPD incident tracker. So the basis for the project was that the UCPD releases a daily incident report on, on weekdays. They, they don't do Saturdays and Sundays, so they release that on Mondays. And what they give you in that is the date it's reported, the time it's reported, a small field of probably about 200 words describing the incident, a, a categorization, and um, a rough address, which can either be a street number or a house number, street, or some amalgamation of three or four cross streets, which is kind of difficult to manage. So what I did is uh, I created a scraper that runs every morning. A scraper in this case is an application that essentially accesses the website, takes the HTML, parses out meaningful things, and then I use those addresses and through some text parsing 
and put those into the Google Maps and Census geocoders. Uh, geocoders, for those that don't know, are ways in which you can take an address and they get the latitude and longitude out of it. Um, and then I put those on a map. Um, there's a handful of uh, sort of difficult things I ran into where uh, all of the fields are freeform. So what you run into is instead of colon, sometimes you get a semicolon in the time. Sure. Uh, instead of a one, you get an exclamation point. So <laughs> two exclamation point eight p.m. is a thing you'll see periodically. Um, certain things that we had to take into account, and especially for the mapping parts, where we didn't want anybody to, if there was a space of like, we'll say just like dating violence of some sort, we didn't want to post those on a map because we didn't want to really. Our goal wasn't to compound that difficulty. Yeah. Um, so those are not going to be displayed on the map for the sake of just privacy and people's mental well-being. But I think that something we're like, looking to do in the like, distant future, because there'll be another phase of this, hopefully, where we'll be looking at, um, I guess, let me go back. Those things are useful in aggregate. So I think those will be things like, you look at trends over, has campus gotten safer, has it? Gotten sure, yeah. Um, but there is some work that I'm hoping to get done before the end of next quarter in terms of uh, hotspots for specific things. So there'll be some data spatial analysis being done among some year-over-year -year trends. What trends have you noticed already when just looking at the data? Um, it's something that was odd and something that I didn't really expect is if you look at at least incident types, 2 to 4 p.m. seems to be the highest amount. Yeah. Um, there's some thought to that being that, uh, at least with... I think so if you remember those COVID maps, they'd be like the, the COVID hotspots. Um, yeah, Hopkins had a, Johns Hopkins had one that I always looked at. They always, uh, there's a, the thought of like, if you look at geospatial stuff where most, those maps tend to be actually just population maps. Sure. So like the, the places of the highest incidence tend to be cities where there are a lot of people. Um, so the thought of where it's uh, 2 to 4 p.m. is like, that is when the most people are there. So you're going to get um, that more than anything else. The highest thing I, I tended to see was a uh, theft. Um, I thought there was more, there was a, at least based on my, some cursory analysis, there was more domestic violence than I was comfortable with seeing. That was something I didn't hmm. expect necessarily, but I also understand those crimes tend to happen fairly quietly. Um, yeah. But those are certainly marked there quite a bit. All right. Thank you, Michael. Next, we'll go to Henry who has a report on the university's budget deficit and its plans to erase that deficit. Yes, thank you, Jake. I want to preface that I am not a financial expert, so if there are any financial experts out there and there's wrong information, um, you can email them around at whatever that email is and get them to fix it. So this has been a story that's been developing for quite some time, um, and Elena Eisenstadt has done some great reporting on it. Um, the university is in what seems to be considerable money trouble. Um, this was quite apparent. Um, Professor Clifford Endo, several months ago, did a rather telling town hall uh, critiquing the university's financial strategies. Um, and this week, on Tuesday, the university president, Paul Alvisados, alongside Provost Catherine Biker and Chief Financial Officer Ivan Samstein, held a town hall where they discussed uh, future strategies for reducing their deficit which I should note currently stands at $239 million. Um, the town hall mainly went through short, medium, and long-term strategies, which we will get to, 
and then followed with a Q&A session for invited faculty members to discuss their concerns. So essentially the overall theme seems to be that a lot of the time the university at least claims that it is focusing on its core values, which uh, free speech, freedom of inquiry, um, the core curriculum, whatnot, that they seem very, very adamant to keep those values intact when they move forward the future investments. This was something that uh, Biker talked about. She said that, well, theoretically, we could erase our debt today by simply stopping everything. But obviously, that's not a viable option. Um, instead, the university is seeking to look at what they call their central units, which includes most of the sort of administrative functions. Um, the reason for this, which was discussed by Clifford Endo, is that a lot of the academic and faculty funding is tied up in very specific contractual obligations. And so the university can't just go in and reduce staff funding, which takes up the majority of the university's budget. Um, they have to then look at non-obligatory spending, uh, such as various kind of administrative costs, uh, structuring costs, technology and services. Um, and those are things they're looking to cut. Uh, but the primary goal for the university in the next couple of years is to increase their revenue. And this is what's gotten a lot of faculty members quite upset. The university's main strategy uh, for the next couple of years is to primarily increase professional programs and sort of um, non-academic, if you will, professional programs, increase um, things such as summer sessions, their charter schools, um, their professional schools, uh, their East Chicago Medicine Centers. Um, a lot of faculty members have expressed concern that this is the university kind of shifting their focus from their core academic values, from being a primarily research institution to becoming a institution focused on professional goals for the sake of economic gain. Um, the university seems to claim that that's not what they're doing, that they're just trying to, you know, save their investments for a future as a research institution. Um, it seems that they, you know, the president says that we are not currently in dire straits. He used a lot of tornado metaphors, um, uh, calling on the fact that Fujita, the inventor of the tornado Fujita scale, was a scholar at this university. Um, he says that we are not... I'll quote him. He says, uh, we are not currently a tornado on the Fujita scale, um, but that a storm is brewing, if you will. I believe the, the language he used was that the current university financial pressures are a manageable thunderstorm. That is correct. <laughs> Which, manageable, sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk sometimes. People used to say that uh, we could nuke a hurricane to get rid of it. And I think that a lot of faculty members have had concerns that this is almost a sort of similar strategy, that the university's attempt to get them out of a financial hole is at the same time kind of eliminating a lot of what, um, a lot of the core values of this university that the people at the top are swearing that they'll protect. Um, I have several thoughts here. <laughs> Number one is this claim that Alavisados and the others were making, which is that the university's investments and its history of investing and its history of revenue growth has been for the good of building trust with society and that continuing to reduce our deficit is an act of kind of social good. Um, 
And I know there's a lot of people out there who have done very extensive research on the fact that this is not the case in a lot of instances, that the university has had very predatory monetary and development policies in the past. I mean, those I'm not an expert on, but generally speaking, I think that that the university hasn't, you know, that they have these core values, but that their investments have not necessarily been directed in that area, that they've been directed for making the university more money. Um, the other main thought I have is that a lot of what they're talking about is that they want to be put on par with peer institutions such as the Ivy League, which generally have much larger endowments and thus have less financial difficulties. Um, and there's generally discussion about how, you know, 30 years ago we were not uh, attempting to do this. We were a very, not necessarily little known, well-renowned academically, but not a, a top-tier mainstream university. And in the past 30 years, mainly under Dean Boyer's term, we've been expanding into one. Um, and I personally don't believe that that was a wise decision simply because we don't seem to have the financial or historical capabilities to do that. Um, and yet we decided to do anyway. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on this, but. I'm a student in one of the professional schools, so the policy school, and there's certainly a feeling of there are more students than the program can necessarily handle. There's a lot of uh, difficulties for us, at least in terms of we look at ourselves relative to the business school or the law school where the, it for us it feels like there's, I think the, the class size for each policy group is about 500 students. And it feels like we are, instead of being in a space where we're kind of sought after, I mean, like if you look at the business school and the law school, that's very much the case. We have to sort of hustle for any jobs afterwards. And there's certainly frustrations that have been vented even in that space. And faculty have raised class size concerns. One of the changes that the university seeks to make is that they're aiming to make tuition dollars um, the way they're partitioning tuition dollars between academic departments is based on how many students are in each department. Um, a lot of faculty members are worried that what that's going to do is it's going to promote, you know, it's going to make departments want to increase their class sizes and decrease their teaching quality just for the sake of running more efficiently and getting more funding. Um, and I think it, it, you'll run into that problem where there will be more highly valued departments that get more funding and more resources and then there will be others that do not. Yeah, I definitely get the sense that for like master's programs, for example, the university is kind of optimizing for revenue and is not optimizing for like, you know, having the highest quality experience for students for say the law school or the business school. I think um, UChicago is like very aware of the rankings of those programs and making sure that they are eminent relative to peer institutions. Um, but I don't think the same thing exists for like the policy school. I don't think they feel that same pressure. And so I think they're yeah, just optimizing for having a lot of students making as much money as possible off of those programs. And that's something that we saw in um, in Henry's report. It seems like they're trying to lean into those programs as a source of revenue to help support everything else. I think the, the notion of like cash cows in that space is certainly something that we've, at least I've felt. Yeah. And um, it's not unheard of with the rest of the cohort. Even in the undergrad sphere, uh, we did an article a while ago on how um, economics classes and, and they, at the undergrad level are always over capacity and some economics majors do not get the classes that they have to get to graduate yeah. and that's speaking to the same point of not being able to support so many people but also trying to pursue it anyway.
The university has also sought out a staff hiring freeze, which is only making things worse. They're attempting to, you know, increase the ratio of students per, per faculty or staff member, but then they are not hiring new faculty or staff uh, to allow for growth in these departments. Basically, they want growth, but they don't want to grow the number of people they have to pay them. So it's only going to make these kinds of issues worse. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a tough position for the university. There is this deficit that they need to make smaller considering how much debt the, we have. Um, and cuts have to come somewhere. Revenue has to come from somewhere. Um, the, the question that becomes like, you know, how do we end up here? Was it wise? Probably not. There were probably mistakes made along the way. Um, and we'll see where the path forward takes us. On that note, I have a report on some of those budget cuts in action. The university has decided to shut down the Institute on the Formation of Knowledge and has also laid off 180 UC Med employees. First, on the Institute of Formation of Knowledge, or IFK. Its director, Shadi Barch Zimmer, Distinguished Service Professor of Classics and Gender Studies, announced the closure of the IFK on social media. She said that this closure was, naturally, for budgetary reasons. The IFK opened in 2015 as an interdisciplinary center focused on knowledge production and formation. Its guiding question, as listed on its website, is, what do we know? The IFK currently has 10 fellows and affiliates, 7 postdocs, 50 core faculty members who also have their own departments, and 9 administrative staff. The administrative staff will lose their positions, and the postdocs will be unable to renew contracts with the IFK, although those with contracts that run past this year should have those honored. And it's unclear what will happen with master's students who are pursuing formation of knowledge certificates through the IFK. The IFK has taught about a thousand undergraduates since its founding, and for seven years now it has published a journal called No, a journal on the formation of knowledge. The publication of that journal will cease. Barch Zimmer asked the administration questions regarding the shutdown. As of the time of reporting, which was this last Thursday, she had not received any answers from them. She is the widow of late university president Robert or Bob Zimmer, and said, quote, Bob saw the IFK as a great credit to the university's reputation and had a powerful vision for UChicago's thriving. I'm discouraged and sad. This report was based on an article by Emma Jansen for The Maroon. Next, I'll talk briefly about UC Med layoffs. UC Med laid off 180 employees on February 1st. In a statement to The Maroon, officials said that most of these positions are administrative and not, quote, patient-facing. This comes after UC Med broke ground on an $800 million cancer care and research pavilion in September and comes as hospital centers around the country are also facing other layoffs. This report was based on an article by Oliver Bunton for the Maroon. I mean, I don't really know what to make of all of this. I don't know if we can ascribe this to the budgetary issues that the university talked about in the town hall. I guess what's concerning to me is that the university seems to be very secretive about all of this. Like the town hall, for instance, was invite only, and I'm sure there's a rationale behind that. But I just feel like, you know, as a student, I would like to be privy to, you know, what the financial state of the university is, because I think it has implications. I don't know if it will have implications for undergraduates. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the university is not generally in the habit of closing these sorts of institutes. I think we like having those and having these, like, specific places for people to do very specific sorts of work. Like, where are you, Chicago, you know? Um, and... For it to close, I mean, Shadi Bartzimmer did say that it was for budgetary reasons. I think that's what the university told her. Um, as in terms of the secrecy point, um, yeah, I think it's Clifford Ando who said that 
the university has a pathology of secrecy. Um, we don't know what buildings the university owns. We don't know um, where our endowment is, uh, like, you know, what we're invested in. Um, we don't know exactly where all the budget cuts will be until they happen. Uh, for instance, in con uh, the Maroon reached out to the university, which uh, refused to confirm that this institute was even being shut down. Obviously it is, because the director announced that, but for whatever reason, they didn't want to tell us one way or another. So um, that's just where we are in terms of the relationship there. It's funny because I don't know a ton about the IFK, but I know they give out a lot of free stuff. And yeah? Yeah, like my friends used to go there a lot because you know they live in apartments and they love coffee, and the IFK gives out free coffee. And... Or gave out, I guess. <laughs> maybe we'll continue to give out for the rest of the academic year. I don't know. Or maybe their coffee budget will just be slashed in anticipation of everything else. Yeah, they have a really nice building. It's, you know, it's, it's on, um, I guess, down University Avenue. It's uh, It's got some really cool furniture, um, some nice art on the walls, and... Um, I'll have to stop in sometime. Yeah, and they have some cool, like, stickers there that they hand out. And I, I mean, they're, they're going to obviously use that building for something else and I wonder what they're gonna end up doing with that but it, it, it will be sad to see it go even though I haven't really engaged with them in a fully like epistemological capacity <laughs> yeah I mean we are lucky to have so many like just sort of cool resources like that even if any one student won't interact with most of them um I think Celeste showed me the map room at the reg. Like mm -hmm. it's just a cool space. They have all these maps. Like not every university has that. That's you know what you get when you're at a university that has resources and is willing to spend money on these sorts of academic pursuits. Um, and unfortunately, we're losing a bit of that. <laughs> Next, we're going to go to Celeste, who has another piece on um, issues with money involving grad students who agreed to a strike pledge. UChicago's Graduate Student Union, Graduate Students United, United Electrical, has collected over 1,000 signatures for a strike pledge it launched on February 8th, becoming the second labor union on campus preparing to strike if negotiations with the university reach a standstill. If GSU-UE were to move forward with the next step, a strike authorization vote, they would be joining UC Med nurses. The nurses' union is proceeding with a strike authorization vote on February 20th after their own strike pledge received over 2,100 signatures. A GSU-UE general membership meeting for the launch of the strike pledge took place on Thursday at Hyde Park Union Church less than an hour after their latest eight-hour bargaining session with the university. Around 500 members were in attendance at the 6 p.m. meeting, comprising in-person and Zoom attendees. In a show of solidarity with GSU-UE, UC Med Nurse, and NNU Representative Amber Turry announced to the crowd at the meeting that, quote, we will be out on your picket lines if you guys make the move to strike. A statement from Provost Catherine Biker released the day after the meeting indicates the university is taking the potential for a strike seriously. A strike would be harmful to graduate students and the university community. Striking graduate students would not be paid during a strike and progress toward their academic degrees might be affected, the statement read. However, should GSU-UE decide to strike, the university will be prepared to minimize disruption to our campus community. Bargaining has been split into economic proposals such as wage, wage considerations and health insurance benefits and non-economic or language proposals such as union rights to collect dues and who's included in the bargaining unit. Many of the non-economic issues have been resolved, but the university has refused to budge on one demand in particular, codified anti-discrimination language. 
specifically the GSU's demanding protection against caste-based and political belief-based discrimination and protection from abuse of authority and sexual harassment. Resistance appears to be, quote, due to several prominent donors who are against that language, said History PhD candidate and GSU member Joe Yalowitz in an interview with the Maroon. Wide gaps also remain on many economic proposals. The two sides are in a deadlock over minimum annual compensation. Most recently, the university proposed a 2.25% raise or a 41K minimum compensation for the next academic year. GSU countered asking for 44K starting next academic quarter, which would mean a stipend of 11K for spring and summer quarter and a 6.25% increase or $46,750 for the 2024-2025 academic year. Yalowitz said that while it's true the university has run into financial issues, it has been using the situation as an excuse for stalling in the bargaining process. He said, quote, it seems a little bit convenient that in the middle of these major bargaining sessions with four or five unions across campus, the university says we are in such a financial pinch. Graduate students are also limited in the number and type of classes they can teach and receive compensation for. Yalowitz called it a, quote, clever financial maneuver by the university that by having postdoc fellows teach, they can have both professors and grad students do less teaching. There is a consensus among meeting members that the university's next steps will determine whether or not a strike takes place. Quote, ultimately, the ball is in their court, GSU Communications Director Sierra Schwabach said. And this article will soon be published in the Maroon in its full. Who's writing this article, Celeste? I will. I reported on it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was really surprised to hear that that was the like major gap in negotiations, as you described an anti-discrimination clause. It's kind of insane that for something this significant a a couple donors could like have that kind of impact yeah and they've been arguing about this for a long time and i think the last time the issue was addressed was 11 weeks ago when they were bargaining with the university the university brought back a counter proposal taking away any kind of specific mention of caste based or political um discrimination and they've tried to get or they have uc law professors helping Um, That's good. But I don't know how it's going to end up. Um, They're really adamant about having this language in the contract. And the stakes here are high. A strike, um, I mean, no matter what UChicago says, grad students are like the backbone of a lot of this university. They teach so many classes. They grade so many classes. Um, Most research assistants. Yep. If if grad students went on strike and at any significant scale, um, things would go poorly. We'd really feel it. Yeah, and they understand that. I mean, they were they explained to the members what a strike would mean. No reporting to your PI, no doing work and not telling your PI, like all work stops. Um, so it would be pretty powerful if that were to happen. I think they feel extremely underappreciated. And also the university says it wants to remain competitive. All other peer institutions, I think, have 44K as a minimum. Um, and that's on the lower end. Yeah, I mean, this gets at the, the point that um, you know, our peer institutions are not necessarily our peers financially at this moment in time with all the debt that the university has taken on with the lack of um, you know, endowment and the alums from way back when who can give us as much money as a Princeton or whatever it is. I wonder if it's at least wise for them to chase that because you're, those universities have like was it 200 more years of history, right? <laughs> and so like, to what degree yeah. can you actually out contribute something that's been accruing interest for that long. Mm. That feels 
obviously they're much better at economics than me, but like that seems like a hard gap to. Well, this chief financial officer is new. The okay. previous chief financial officer was fired uh, just a few months back. He was fired. <laughs> well, I don't know, left. <laughs> and in the face of what, everything that's um, been happening. Perhaps they mutually parted ways. Perhaps. All right, and our last story is from Greg on some controversy around President Elie Wiesado's meeting with the Israeli consul. Uh, University of Chicago President Paul Libisatos met with Consul General of Israel to the Midwest Vietnam Cohen on January 23rd. According to Cohen's ex, formerly Twitter and LinkedIn, the purpose of the meeting was to, quote, further enhance the partnership between UChicago and Israeli research institutions and to make sure that every Jewish or Israeli student feels safe on campus. Cohen also met with students from Hillel and Shabbat two Jewish organizations that aim to promote, quote, a diverse and pluralistic Jewish community and to uh, create, quote, a space on campus where Jewish students can feel comfortable without labels or judgment, according to their respective websites. The Hillel chapter at UChicago is part of the larger organization, Hillel International. According to FBI statistics, anti-Jewish incidents comprised 54% of religion-related hate crimes in the U.S. in 2022, the next largest category was anti-sick incidents, which made up 8.9% of the total. And Axios reported that 2023 saw a rise in both anti-Jewish and anti-Muslim hate crimes in the U.S.'s largest cities. In response to the meeting, UChicago Jews for Free Palestine released a letter sent to UChicago administrators. In the letter, they denounced the Kilhan meeting and requested that Olivi Sato's Heed pro-Palestinian students call to publicly meet about UChicago's investments and partnerships related to Israel. Now, the university's view regarding the meeting was expressed in a uh, statement issued by a university spokesperson uh, to the Marin, which reads, the university has developed a consensus against taking uh, social or political stances on issues outside its core mission, the statement read, and the university leaders routinely meet with international leaders from the public and private sector to discuss a range of subjects in research and education, and such meetings do not represent political endorsement. For the full story, including interviews from students who attended the Cohen meeting, see Tiffany Lee's article up on the Maroons website. Thank you for that, Greg. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this sort of gets at an interesting tension with, you know, the Calvin Report and Israel. Um, of whether, you know, sort of acknowledging Israel's existence, meeting with an Israeli official in some way constitutes like a political statement, which for some people on campus, it clearly does. I think we'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then that's our episode for today. Once again, I'm Jake. I'm Celeste. I'm Michael. I'm Greg. And I'm Pravon. Henry had to leave um, just a little bit early. Thank you for joining us this week. We'll be back next week.